Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners, and welcome to episode 15 of season 8 of the Thos Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf, I am your host, and I am speaking to you from the outskirts of Austria's beautiful capital, Vienna. Welcome to this new episode where I will speak to Mary Kay Greer. Well, I'm sure most of you know her. She's one of the big tarot ladies in this world. But also we speak today, and that's also the reason for the title of this episode, Women in the Anti-Occult. Um, she has uh, many, many years ago, 20-ish years ago, written a book about the women of the Golden Dawn. And that was the initial idea why I talked to her. More about that a bit later. But uh, for the time being, let me welcome all of you who are new to this show, who have discovered us just recently and have come here for the first time. It's great to have you here. And while we talk about first time, have all of you who are regulars of the Thos Hermes podcast, and I welcome you just as heartily as the newcomers, because you are the backbone of this podcast. But have you already been on Kai Kobad Radio? Um I don't know. Um, have you heard that jingle already? Well, if you haven't, then you should quickly because that's the jingle of Kaikobad Radio. And on radio.kaikobad.com, you will find 24-7 occult, esoteric, Western tradition content from the best podcasters here on the web, from Occult of Personality, from Glitch Battle, from Thos Hermes, of course, but also, for example, from the Theosophical Society in America, or from Martin Fox, or from Marco Visconti, you name them. And 22 are already on board as content providers on my new Kaikobat Radio, completely free, 24 7. Just tune in, go on the website radio.kaikobat.com. I will spell that for you. No, I don't do that. You go on the Thos Hermes website, which you probably know by now, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And there on the top of the page, you'll find a link to that page and also directly a player for the Kaikobat Radio. So enjoy that as well. And um, if you want to place a player on your website, um, that would be nice as well, uh, because that way you have direct access and other people who visit your website get to know Kaikobad Radio. So uh, let me know, let me have an email and I will send you the code to embed on your webpage. So talking about email, email here at Hermes is info at tosshermes.com. And you can also just go on the website, thoughthermes.com. Everything is there anyway, not only the Kaikobad link and player, but there are the show notes for today's show and for all other shows we have done so far in the previous eight seasons. 
There is also, and that's why I'm saying it, the email address. There is also a direct contact form you can use instead of writing an email yourself or go on Twitter or go on Facebook and leave me a message there. Okay, it would be nice to hear from you and not only about the radio station, but also if you have any ideas or if you have music for the show. I once again need music for the show because um, also today we play music from our listeners and that's always a great moment when that happens. So um, please come and uh, give me your music if you have written and or performed it yourself. That would be great. Um, thank you to two or three new people who have joined as patrons this, uh, this week. Uh, we desperately need you and all of you who have not done so far yet, please go and sign up as a patron on patreon.com. Uh, look for the Thought Hermes podcast or once again, you guessed it, on the Thought Hermes website. Well, it's all on it, you see. There you have also a, a donation button if you prefer a one-off donation or you can there have the link which brings you directly on our page on Patreon. So the Thoth Hermes website is really crucial to everything that I have just said. So once again, the address thoshermes.com, that's T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. Right. I promised you some music and some music you will get. And as I said, today it's music from one of our listeners, actually from two of our friends here, but more about that a bit later. Now it's from one of our listeners who is a gentleman from Italy who contacted me, Fabio, Fabio Pedrotti, and he really sent me lovely music on the tarot cards, actually, and I will play well, isn't that a great fit with Mary Greer, isn't it? So um, I will play for you now at first the um, the Aeon, the music he wrote for the Aeon card. And uh, um, he also wrote some text with that. The Aeon is, of course, the Dutchman card for those who don't use the Thoth, um, the, the Crowley Tarot, so to speak, who those like me actually use the classical Rider weight. It's the Judgment card, or the Aeon card, as it's called here. And if you want to see the text that Fabio Pedrotti wrote to go with that, please go, you guessed it, on the website, on the show notes, you will find that. Okay, so um, Fabio Pedrotti, I will tell you more about him for the next piece, which we will hear. But for the moment, let's just enjoy his music, which he wrote for the tarot card, the Aeon, or the Judgment. Do enjoy.
Fabio Pedrotti's The Alien or The Judgment, his music and text for the tarot card. And I think that's lovely music and also a particularly good fit for our guest here today, Mary Kay Greer. Before I start talking about her, um, some people think that I chatter a bit too much before we finally get to the interview. Well, fair enough, but you have two possibilities if you really think that. To avoid that, A, if you use one of the modern podcast players, which most of you do by now, you have chapter marks that you can use. This podcast uses chapter marks, so just jump directly to the music, directly to the interview. Um, no problem, I'm not offended. Um, on the other hand, why don't you stay with us and listen to what I have to say? Sometimes it can be interesting. And secondly, um, if you want to avoid it, go on Kaikobad Radio, because the, you get uh, starting each Friday after we launch the show, from Friday to Sunday, the week following the launch of the show, you can get uh, the actual episode, just the interview and the music without me in between. Uh, you can get that there. So you have those two options. Decide what to do. Great. So now I would like to read you, as I often do, a little introduction from the book by Mary Kay Greer on the women of the Golden Dawn which is a book, as I said, from the late 1990s already, but it's still as actual. And we used it because I wanted to have Mary on the show for quite some time. Um, and, well, of course, the tarot is her big thing. And the first half of the interview, we are going to talk about the tarot mainly. But then we get into that book, and I think it's an important talk, especially towards the end when we also talk about women in the occult today, which, um, well, I let her talk because she has the experience. She has really interesting and important things to say. So um, stay through to the end. It is a few remarks that are really highly interesting Very at the very end of the show. Stay with us. So let me read to you a little part from the introduction of that book, Women of the Golden Dawn, subtitled, not the intro, but the book, Rebels and priestesses. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was founded in London in 1888 by three Rosicrucian Masons. For the first time, men and women worked together as equals in magical ceremonies whose purpose was to test, purify and exalt the individual's spiritual nature so as to unify it with his or her holy guardian angel. While the history of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is well documented and several of its male members have become famous, their female counterparts have received little credit. And yet, when one reads between the lines of the original documents, four women stand out as the true heart and soul of this magical order. Their imaginative skills, determination and belief in their own creative abilities worked a kind of great magic and changed the world around them. This book is not a history of the Golden Dawn, but a story of four amazing women and the difference magic made in their lives. It is also a statement of the difference magic can make in our own lives today. Together as author and reader, we will discover the ways in which these women found self-esteem, power and wisdom, and how they experienced insecurity, guilt, anxiety, 
fear and fantasy. We will learn that what they gained from the techniques of the Western mystery tradition and how they became the spiritual foremothers of women practicing magic today. If we want to discover our own creativity and ability to change ourselves and the world, it's imperative that we learn from those women and men who practice such transformative magic before us. The poet William Butler Yeats asserted that all knowledge, indeed all sound philosophy, is biography. Until the 20th century, however, biography was primarily a male terrain defined by career and public achievements. Thus have knowledge and philosophy been defined by only half the human race, while the more personal and interpersonal accomplishments of women have gone largely unnoted. And yet, it is from the life stories of our magical foremothers that we can learn to trust ourselves personally and as agents of change. This task is doubly complicated because, as one of the women of the Golden Dawn noted, it is a difficult matter to write the life of an adept, there being so much of an inner and secret nature necessarily involved. In addition, because the Golden Dawn was a secret organization, most of its members carefully destroyed their correspondence and private papers. I felt called upon to tell the story of these women so that we could thus remember, meaning specifically to put together the pieces of, remember the wisdom of those who have shed their light upon the path. Not much more to say, but let's go and meet directly and immediately Mary Kay Greer. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure here that we have on the Thought Hermes podcast today um, somebody who is really overdue on this podcast after over five years of his existence, Mary Kay Greer. Um, one of the voices of the tarot, I would would call her. And um, as we just mentioned in the when we talked just before the interview, uh, it's a very special day in the calendar here today on the day uh, that we record, which is the 26th of May today. Um, hello, Mary. Very, very good to have you on the Thought Hermes podcast. Hello, Rudolf. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, sure. And maybe you would like to explain to our listeners right away uh, why this 26th of May is a kind of special day regarding tarot, especially, <laughs> and the cards. <laughs> right. Um, well, it's actually between two significant dates. Yesterday was World mm. Tarot Day, which um, a lot of people in the tarot world like to do something special for that day, offer uh, special deals on readings or just have something to say about it. And tomorrow is uh, the birthday of Mademoiselle Lenormand, for which the hmm. Lenormand uh, tarot cards uh, were created. Yeah, uh, so it, it is indeed uh, especially, and we are not going to talk about tarot only here today. We have, in fact, two special subjects that we would like to talk. Um, one being, of course, we can't talk to Mrs. Tarot uh, without speaking about the tarot extensively, but there is also one of her 
I don't know if it was, no, it was certainly not your first book, but well, one of your earlier books, let's put, put it that way, uh, when, uh, which is The Women of the Golden Dawn. And that's something, that's a subject I would really like to go also in-depth on because, well, I, I have an impression it's important, especially nowadays again. Um, so, Mary, um, let's start with yourself before we go into the tarot. Um how did that all start for you? I mean, how did it happen that you became a specialist and I mean, so much in with so much in-depth knowledge in the terror? What, what, what was the beginning? Where did it all start? I was in college in Florida and it was Christmas of 1967. My best friend invited me over uh, on Christmas morning so we could share what we got. And she had received a book called um, Revealing the Tarot by Eden Gray. And mm -hmm. uh, that I, I was just incredibly jealous when I saw this book because I'd been studying Jungian um, archetypes to um, I was an English major. So it was archetypal symbolism and learning about the work of James Hillman with his soul's journey. And I looked at these cards and I said, Oh my gosh, you know, here's all these myths that are uh, pictured here, all this deep symbolism. And with these cards, I can see where these archetypes are actually at play in somebody's life. So, you know, mm -hmm. in the moment. And that just intrigued me. Um, the storytelling quality of the Rider Waite Smith deck, although I had no idea what it was at that time. Um, but just from the book alone, I could see that, um, you know, Tarot revealed um, that it really was um, based on these archetypal uh, concepts. So, um, I just started um, finding everything I could about it. Uh, I finally got a tarot deck and found a, a book in the library, slowly started amassing the works. And I decided in that first year that someday I was going to write a book about tarot. I pictured my being in the 60, you know, 60 years old or so, where I was going to finally reveal a lifetime's wisdom about the cards um, and <laughs> that I would uh, teach it someday as an academic subject in a college. So I was going for my bachelor's degree. That meant I had to at least get a master's degree. So that spurred me to actually mm -hmm. get a master's degree. And I was able to teach first as a non-credit course in a college in Florida. Then I moved to California and taught for 11 years in a college where I taught tarot every year uh, and continued to teach, you know, on my own. So um I ended up in California and San Francisco, which was an incredibly rich place for meeting other people who were very much into the tarot. Oh, yeah. So it's it's kind of like Absolutely. it takes a village. Um, all my tarot studies, all my learning has been through students, through other tarot uh, readers and and scholars. Um you know, I've gotten where I am today, not just through my own work, but through um, the inspiration and the work with so many other people who love tarot. Yeah. But that's in general in those arts, I call them arts like the tarot or uh, astrology or, or related art forms. Um, they are, they very much need the mutual inspiration, don't they? Definitely. I mean, it just makes it you can 
do tarot totally on your own. My first book was Tarot for Yourself. So a, pers- a workbook for personal, um, personal development, personal exploration. And it's completely possible. And I know many people who grew up in the Midwest of the United States who had nobody else around. As a matter of fact, the first seven years that I did tarot, I was basically studying on my own. Occasionally, I would meet briefly mm-hmm. someone who knew something about tarot. But those first years was pretty much book learning and developing my own practice. But I found right. that I could teach in a weekend's class the key things that it took me seven years to learn in terms of actually doing readings and relating to other people. Mm -hmm. So, so we can advance much faster and much deeper when working with other people. Is it also at first before you can get there to work for other people, I'm not saying with, but for other people, uh, is it also a question of self-discovery first, like the famous, the famous know thyself at first? Is that also true in the tarot? I think it depends on the individual because a lot of people get into tarot because they see a deck, they've got a book, and their very first reading with someone is mind blowing. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's mm-hmm. what they call beginner's luck in so many different games. Um, so the same thing happens for a lot of people is they don't have no idea what they're doing or they're just playing for, right. with it for themselves. Um, and it takes a while before they really feel comfortable working with somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think each person is so individual as to how they get into tarot that I hate to say that there's any one way approach or focus. Yeah, yeah. But can it, in your view, I know what we're discussing here, of course, is always very personal approaches, um, but um, you have so much experience, you you have an overview over the field. Um, is the tarot, in your uh, view, something that you can exercise as the sole um, esoteric um, art occupation, or is it necessary to have a bit uh, wider field say in hermeticism in 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 some order or or agnosticism or whatever do you need I, that broader field to exercise the tarot properly i don't think you need it but it is so incredibly enriching to do it i've always considered that a deep study of tarot including all of that esoteric material um, and art and mathematics you know probability theory uh and science with um uh you know all different kinds of new physics um all of those things en- enrich it and i think a deep study of tarot is the equivalent of a liberal arts college education If you really you know, mm-hmm. go into history, you go into psychology, you go into sociology, all of these things interrelate and enrich our experience. And of course, correspondence is astrological, Kabbalistic. Um, sure. There's no one system that is absolutely correct. So whatever right. system you feel drawn to or you happen to be introduced to, going deeply into that is only going to deepen your experience with Tarot, I feel. It's just that I, I hate to say that anybody has to do 
anything in a particular way. I keep getting blown away by people who've approached tarot completely differently from me and continue to practice on a very different way. And I admire them so much for what they've done. So I learned from them. Yeah. Did you in your when you started that you mentioned Florida and that is your I think your personal background also Florida initially um, uh, when you started that when you met that friend that what you just explained um, did you I don't know what how old you were at the time but did you meet um, um, favorable uh, support from your from your family back then or was it something you had to do somehow against the current of your family um, how did that happen? Um, my family never said anything against it at all. Um, my father was mm -hmm. Methodist. My mother was Catholic, Roman Catholic. Um, my father was from the North. My mother was from the South. Um, as a matter of fact, she was from okay. New Orleans. <laughs> and her um, okay. grandmother had read cards um, and done various kinds of fortune telling for people in her community. So mm -hmm. um, my mother had no prejudices um, um, about that. And my father was never set anyone to impose that on anybody. I feel very lucky that way in that, um, you know, if, if I was happy doing this, they were happy for me. Yeah, I, I do want to say that um, I, lived in, yeah. uh -huh, I lived in Florida through um, high school and college. Um, I was, oh, oh gosh, I guess 19 uh, or just, yeah, 19 or just turned 20 when I first uh, got into tarot. But um, I'm an army brat, so I've lived in Japan, I lived in Germany, and I've lived in many other places, okay. um, Mexico and England mm -hmm. on my own. So... I love travel. <laughs> right. But that was that was before you that was before you met Taro, so to speak, that does Japan and European experiences with your parents or or. Yes. Yeah. When I was uh, a, a yes. child growing up as an army brat. Hmm. Right, right. So you were not you were not yet um, uh, studying the tarot then. Um, uh, your first deck was that the famous Rider Waite, as with most people, or or did you start off with something else? It, it was the Rider Waite deck. It was the images in tarot revealed by Eden right. Gray, which were a black and white version that drew me because they were storytelling cards. You could make up a story about what was, right, what was exactly. happening to a person and they would sit there and go, how did mm -hmm. you know? And I'd go, I'm just telling you the story I see in the cards and the pictures. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You mentioned two terms which I would like to to ask you about them more in depth. You, I mean, independently, you mentioned them, but you said about your grandmother being uh, involved in the fortune telling, right? That's the one term. And then you also said when you have to, when you study tarot, you should widen and broaden your experience. And you talked about mathematical probability studies. I, I, that puzzled me because I, I think I have never personally heard that from a tarot reader to mention that. And I find it highly interesting that you did that. So if you had to give a definition of where tarot stands for you, is it probability? Is it fact? Is it, is it, is it looking into the future at all? Or is it, is it something else? Um, what, how would you define what you do for your clients um, with the tarot cards? 
I use um, tarot in more of a therapeutic approach. I work with the client, um, with whoever is getting the reading. So um, I describe my personal way of reading to someone as I work as a midwife of the soul to ask them questions that will help them bring their own wisdom to birth. By the way, I didn't know at the time that I came up with that analogy that Freud had described himself as a midwife of the soul. Um, I thought I was being very yeah, original did, yeah, yeah. when I said that. But um, <laughs> and I discovered other people have also used that analogy. But uh, when I was working on my first book, I was in Mexico and pregnant with my only child. And so the whole idea uh, and very close friends with several midwives. And so my experience experience of midwifery and, and giving birth was an analogy that I took into tarot. Um, I, I call my style of reading uh, the right method, which is readings that are interactive, transformational, and empowering. And I don't think you can do that without uh, it coming primarily from the person themselves for whom the reading is being done. Mm -hmm. So I'm a guide. Like when you see as, as, a, as a doctor... When you say as a doctor that the patient has to heal himself, basically, you can right. only guide him through the healing process, right? Exactly. Would that be a, a correct analogy for what you mean? Mm. Exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. You know, when they have an insight, it's so much more important and probably something they're going to act on than if I gave them all the right answers as if there were any kind of right answers. So, um, yeah. Um I do feel that tarot can be looked at entirely as a psychological projective device. But having been doing this for 54 years or however many years it's been, um, there's something magical that happens that defies any kind of explanation, whether it's mathematics right. or um, you know, physics. Uh, you know, um, there's something that uh, transcends all of that that happens over and over again uh, when I do uh, tarot. So um, all I can do is be in awe of that. You mentioned uh, Jung, of course. Is it uh, in your in your point of view part of the collective consciousness? What happens there that that this that these things happen that you mentioned? Um, Definitely, we can use those concepts. I'm very much um, involved in Jungian studies and have been ever since mm. uh, the 1960s. And uh, I belong to a, a reading group that met several times a month for over 20 years, readings in Jungian material. Right. So um, that's definitely been a focus. At the same time, I realized that those were theories. They're not facts. So the collective unconscious is a theory that for me is very workable. And within the collective unconscious, there are archetypes which cannot be seen, touched, described. But we have images that we call archetypal that respond to some kind of um, energy in the DNA of human beings <laughs> and perhaps beyond um, that uh, give yeah. us meaning that bring meaning to our lives. And I think a meaningful life or looking for the meaning in an experience is one of the most profound things we can do. And they, those theories really help us more than anything else I know to do that. Would you say that you help your clients 
tap into that collective consciousness to understand more about what's going on or what might happen? Um, I, I don't use that, that, that terminology, but um, the reason why I, I stick primarily with the Rider-Waite-Smith deck when I do readings for other people is because hmm. um, what I found is that somebody who knows nothing about tarot, if I take them through a process beginning with describing a card very literally, then going into the feelings, emotions, atmosphere of the card, um, and then some storytelling with it, that the key things that they point out are going to be the same keywords as that you will find in any book on the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. If that's not there mm -hmm. being some kind of collective unconscious, um, I don't know what is. And I teach all over the world. So I can find this in South America. I can find it in China. I can find it to Europe, um, to the United States, everywhere I go. Uh, I find the same experience when they look at the cards and in essence project onto those images there without realizing they're doing it, um, their, uh, their own experience. It matches very closely for the most part what is said in the books. And when it doesn't match, when it goes contrary to that, um, that is usually a sign to me that something very important is going on. In other words, those uh, things stand right. in juxtaposition to each other and are important in their own right. You know, if, if somebody very, looks at very the Empress, approach. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if somebody looks at the Empress and says, you know, this is a terrible, hateful person, I find that perhaps even more important than if they describe her as, you know, kind, beautiful, um, caring, you know, <laughs> because it's part of the yeah, larger yeah, no, no, archetype you mean. Yeah, yeah, of the yeah. great mother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and what they make out of it is, is might be completely special in that case. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Do you, I mean, clients who come to your to a first reading or first ever terror reading, maybe to you, mm -hmm. um, how do you experience that with them? Do they do they understand right away your approach? Because I could imagine that many people who do a first reading, they expect from you, you know, the, the famous thing, uh, they go into a tent and there is that lady telling them the, the, the future. And, and that's not at all what you do. Are they, is it hard for you to fetch them from that and bring them into what you want to do with them? It depends on where I'm reading. Uh, luckily, I live in California and um, I prefer doing face-to-face -face readings whenever possible or mm. over Zoom where we can look at each other. But people come to me primarily because they've read one or more of my books. Um, if they don't know anything about me um, in California, it's usually pretty easy to give them uh, an explanation of we're going to be working interactively and, mm. you know, the things I said before. Um, so most people get it. But when I travel and occasionally if I do a reading in, um, like when I was doing some readings at, at a bookstore in Oakland, California, across the, um, the bay from San Francisco, there were yeah. people who wanted hardcore predictions. Uh, one woman wanted to know yeah. when her ex-boyfriend was going to return to her, even though he was now happily married and had a new baby, but when? 
and she wouldn't take any other answer. She wanted a date. <laughs> and my saying never was not what she wanted. So there's, of course, I certainly have had experiences with people who just wanted straightforward prediction information. Um, mm. And a couple of cases um, I had to end the reading say, you know, really, I'm not for you. In 54 years, it's been two, maybe three times I've had to do that out of right. thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of readings. Um, but, yeah. um, you know, I had to recognize when I was not what, what they wanted or needed and that there was no meeting place. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, That's important I, to do it at that moment and not to continue. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I am flexible on my reading style. Uh, every couple of years, I try to approach the tarot from a completely different perspective and train myself in something that's very uncomfortable for me to do. So mm -hmm. I've, uh, you know, taken time out in a sense of uh, to focus on doing more predictive readings uh, or to, you know, use a completely different approach and style and deck. Um, so, you know, for a couple of years, I used the Marseille and the Thought deck exclusively for two years, uh, going back and forth between the two of those. So, um, yeah, I, you know, in 52 years, I like to challenge myself periodically and see how I can yeah. spread so I can shift my style of reading or combine styles when necessary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was going to ask you that about different decks and you just partly answered that question. So you, you, you used the Thoth deck and the Marseille deck. And of course, those three together with the Rider Waite are maybe the three most famous decks that most people uh, who are interested in tarot have had in hand. Yeah. Um, I would like to come back to the Marseille deck in a moment. But um, beyond that, of course, there are so many decks now on the market and many are just uh, pictorial and, and uh, just uh, look, look fancy, but don't mean anything. At least that's my opinion. Um, but um, beyond those three classical ones, um, how do you how how do you esteem other decks? What's important for you to 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 be able to say, well, this is a deck that um, I would like to work with, or I would be interested in, because. What, what defines such a deck? Is it, is it the pictures? Is it uh, the colors? Or, or can you at all name what it is? I can't precisely name it because I keep coming across something that's outside the box. Um, I do respond to yeah. beautiful artwork, but then if this... Uh, and I, I do tend to focus more on decks that are Golden Dawn and or Rider Waite Smith influenced uh, over the Marseille. Mm -hmm. um, my struggles to read Marseille, I feel, um, have not been beneficial for me or the deck <laughs> as much um, as the others, which are just okay. feel comfortable. Um, so uh, I use a, a variety of decks when reading for myself and uh, in classes, whereas for readings, I do tend with, you know, when I'm paid readings, I do tend to use Rider Waite Smith um, more often than others. Um, uh, but I, I, I need to stretch myself periodically. And so there's a, a yeah. new deck, the Light Seers, Seekers Tarot, which I really enjoy. Um, my ex-husband did the William Blake Tarot, the Creative Imagination, which is 
largely mm-hmm. influenced by Thoth and Rider Waite Smith. Uh, for several years, I used the Mother Peace Tarot uh, with a feminist perspective. Um, and especially I was doing a lot of work in women's camps. And so that uh, really worked in with mm-hmm. the, uh, the work I was doing at the time. Um, so, right. yeah, and I've learned to use the Lenormand deck because I don't like doing those very predictive, precise readings um, where you get a very concrete answer with the tarot. I prefer meaning and um, learn what you learn from a situation with Lenormand. If I need to get that kind of precision, I can go to that deck. Right. But in the Lenormand in my opinion now uh, it is it is rather different from the classical tarot deck isn't it totally which is why i learned it was um because i wanted something that i wouldn't get confused with tarot yeah you don't right. read the symbols right. with lenormand right. you just memorize set meanings and read in very precise ways so you get very okay. precise answers okay Okay. Okay. Uh, talking about symbols, I, I, I was going to ask that I, I know cases and many, many years ago, I wasn't the same in, in the same um, situation, but it's so long time back that I don't even remember what brought me out of that situation. So I, I asked you as a specialist and um, uh, I know about a lot of people who get stuck, you know, they, they, they take a right away to Smith's, uh, the classical deck. They have, good books about it, you know, they, and they read, okay, this card uh, goes into that meaning and that means that and that and that. And they, and then it suddenly says, okay, now lay those five cards in front of you and feel what they tell you. And they get completely stuck because in what they have read, they have a hard time to sense, to feel the card. And um, mm-hmm. what would you suggest or 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 how would you help such a person to 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 be able to to receive yeah um well two books one tarot for yourself um which was my first book has several exercises in uh you know the basic premise is you can throw away the books and learn by just relating to the cards um, and get establishing a personal relationship with them. Um, and so mm-hmm. I've got a lot of different techniques for doing that in there. Um, the other book is 21 ways to read a tarot card. And theoretically, a person reading the entire book would go through 21 different, totally different ways of reading a, the same tarot card. Um, in workshops, I can take somebody through a good number of those um, experiences in about an hour and a half. So I do uh-huh. it with paired uh, group, uh, you know, people in pairs and have them mm-hmm. read their own card and take them through all of these different techniques. So um, the which the car techniques that are easiest for people that really uh, help them to understand um, and get the point are usually that show their natural style of reading the cards. Uh, the ones that are more difficult are the ones that I feel you should then, or ideally a person will then uh, work to develop if they want to become a well-rounded reader. 
but uh, honoring yeah. your kind of natural proclivity, the, the natural what feels right to you and realizing that this can become the basis for your own style of reading is uh, really important. So there's 21 different ways <laughs> that, um, you know, I can um, do, but starting out with simply describing a card is very powerful, no metaphors, no symbolism, no meaning to anything, just a literal description. You know, there are three people on the card. One is standing, two are sitting. They're wearing clothes of this color in the background, in the foreground. So, um, you know, and then I have them repeat what they just said in the first person present tense. I am three people. Mm -hmm. One of me is standing. Two of me is sitting. I'm wearing these different clothes. Behind me is this. In front of me is this. And often when somebody does that, there's an aha moment or several aha moments. And when I'm yeah. having somebody do that, a client do that with me, I'm watching for those aha moments that they might not even notice, but I can see in their body language, yeah. which is why I like doing, um, you know, person to person uh, readings. And, but you can also hear it in their voice, even just in audio, you can hear, I mean, when I'm talking and you're talking, you can hear when we get more excited, <laughs> when, you know, there's something that Course, really yeah. us. Sure, yeah. sure. No, no, I understand what you mean. Uh, I know that from my profession as well, and, and that, that's absolutely true. Absolutely the case. You, you mentioned um, a Dissos tarot, and you also said that you personally prefer those decks which have a relation to to the golden dawn uh, background etc in i mean that's a tricky question maybe but the source tarot which is the crowley tarot, tarot of course yeah. um, is that in your in your experience as a tarot reader um also a derivate from the golden dawn tradition or is that so much telemite that it is far away from the golden dawn tradition I think it can be read completely as a Golden Dawn deck. And then if you want to go deeper, of course, into Crowley's intentions, then um, it is going to help to learn everything that you can from his perspective. So um, it's yeah. a difficult deck if you don't have a background in one or both of those traditions. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I think. which that was the perfect transition, Mary, to 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 my next question, because you yeah. said, yes, um, of course, it all helps in in being in being uh, also integrated or have knowledgeable in other traditions, not just the tarot. Uh, may I ask personally, your do you have also such a background that you if you want to talk about that, but do you have mm. a kind of a. a yeah, call it magical or cult, whatever background that you that you have during your work achieved and and which helps you in the tarot work. Oh, definitely. Um, around the time I first got into tarot or within a year or two, uh, I got very interested in astrology and started studying that. Um, then I had 
moved um, to Atlanta and then on to uh, London, where I lived for about a year. And during that time, I was doing all kinds of magical studies, um, my beginning first steps in it. Um, So those were kind of open ended, um, any information I could get from anywhere and just playing around with friends, you know, coming up with magical um, elixirs and formulas and uh, trying out Mm -hmm. magic on Mm -hmm. boyfriends and Uh, you know, magical, yeah, magical sure. makeup, which I learned very quickly not to do. <laughs> they always end up uh, you know, backfiring. But I mean, that uh, one of the things I did learn is that uh, some of my major learnings about magic were through the magical mistakes. It would be helpful if you didn't have to do that. But those are the ones that really uh, go deep <laughs> and uh, you get the, the real understanding right. of what to do and not do. Anyway, um, yeah, so uh, I got very interested in the women who had belonged to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn as I got into the basic mm-hmm. tarot correspondences, the Kabbalistic and astrological correspondences. Uh, so uh, the women intrigued me. Um, I had mentioned I did a lot of feminist studies and I was a college professor for yeah. uh, several years. So uh, doing women's studies. So um I taught women's biography and autobiography. And of course, I wanted to know everything I could about the women who had belonged to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn because it was one of the first magical organizations to uh, have men and women both working magical rituals together as equals. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, yeah. I decided to write a biography of the what I considered to be the four major original women who uh, belong to that yes. order. And here comes our usual little interruption of the interview, um, which in this case is musical as well, of course, as always, but <clears throat> very special and does also involve Mary Kay Greer. No, she does not act as a singer or whatever, but... You remember maybe a few episodes ago, I played three of the meditations on the tarot that um, our friend Chris Roberts has set into music with important occultists reading one of the texts of those meditations. And, um, well, Paul Foster Case wrote them, of course, those texts. And we had Greg Kaminsky, Nick Farrell, and I believe Angel Millar in that episode where Three of those meditations were read, and Mary Greer also, uh, she then recorded for Chris one of the cards, the High Priestess, of course, very good fit. And, well, when uh, Chris learned that we were having Mary Greer here on the show this week, he contacted me and said, well, I have that recording of Mary's, why don't we play that in the interval, uh, in the break of the of the interview and very good idea thank you chris for contacting me about that and for sending me the file and also refurbishing it a little bit um, technically thanks for that and you're going to hear that in one moment chris roberts just wanted to mention who of course wrote that beautiful intro outro music for our show here who also wrote the kaikobat jingle that we heard kaikobat radio remember the jingle that we heard earlier You don't remember? Well, here it is again.
Yeah, I know I'm pestering you with the radio, but I desperately want you to know about radio and to go and listen for it. Okay, good. So Chris, he did that beautiful stuff and he, you should contact him if you need anything for your podcast, like music, uh, background, whatever. He, he'll be available. Contact me if you don't find him. I'll point you towards him. Right, so back to the music. So this will be the meditation on Gimel, the meditation on the High Priestess card. Set into music by Chris Roberts and spoken by Mary Kay Greer. After which we, of course, will return to Mary and have the second part of the interview. And we will then, at the end of the interview, play a second, another tarot card, the chariot in that case. But again by our friend Fabio Pedrotti, like the first card, the Aeon, that we played earlier in this episode. So once again, now it's the meditation on the... High Priestess card, read by Mary Kay Greer, set into music by Chris Roberts, then the rest of the interview, then Fabio Pedrotti's interpretation of the card, the chariot, after which I come back and will announce you next week's guest. Enjoy. Thou hast seen, O Israel, how for the sake of creation, the one life that I am seemeth to divide itself, becoming two. Of these two, I have made known to thee my superior nature, the crown of primal will, wherein I have my supreme abode. Hearken now, while I expound the mystery of mine inferior nature, which standeth in the tree of life as the Sephira of wisdom. Forget not that these two, though they be named superior and inferior, are in truth of equal rank, as it is written, that which is below is as that which is above, and that which is above is as that which is below. Be thou not led astray by thy, their false doctrine, who ascribe to the inferior nature somewhat less of power and worth than inherit in the superior. The two are as the pans of a balance. Each hath its own peculiar quality. Each hath its appointed sphere of operation. One cometh not before the other, but together they exist from everlasting to everlasting. Mine inferior nature is the universal substance, the divine mirror wherein I, who dwell at the heart of all things, am reflected to myself. To the uninstructed, therefore, who mistake the reflection for that which is reflected, my secondary nature seemeth to be more interior than the primal will. This error may be likened to the illusion which ariseth when one seeth a room reflected in a glass and thinketh he seeth the room itself. For though what presenteth itself in the mirror of wisdom is internal, the medium of reflection hath its place in thee without, 
in the realm of secondary and created things. As the substance whence all forms arise, the vehicle of my divine essence, mine inferior nature, is to the superior as is passive to active, as woman to man, as Eve to Adam. Yet to every light of emanation proceeding from it on the tree of life, does this same wisdom stand as root and source. Hence in the scripture is wisdom spoken of as a woman. And when it is said, wisdom hath builded her a house. But elsewhere to this same wisdom, the wise assign the title Ab, the father. Never is the heavenly wisdom known as mother. For she is the virgin substance of all things, whose purity naught can defile. Remember now that I myself am the pure knowing, whence all manifestation ariseth. Recall to mind that my superior nature is the primal will, the eternal watcher, under whose regard the stream of creation floweth. The substance of the stream is the inferior nature, wherein I see innumerable images of myself. These be all things and creatures, great and small. Whatever exists is as a ripple on the surface of the stream, but all are of the one substance. Thus all share in the peculiar quality of the stream itself, which is the mirror of myself to myself, the root of all remembrance. Creation is the record of mine ever-changing manifestation. All things bear the imprint of the history of the universe. Nothing of mine activity escapeth this record. In it do men share, because they too are parts of the stream of mine inferior nature. Thus are they partakers in my perfect recollection, which is the source of all memories and the root of all the wisdom of mankind. All wisdom, therefore, is summed up in knowledge of me. To gain this is the aim of all research, of all works, of all devotion. From knowledge of me cometh the lesser knowledge of the things which I have brought forth. Of no avail is this lesser knowledge unless it be founded upon the knowledge of my superior and inferior natures. Hence it is written, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, and thy days shall be long. To keep me in vivid remembrance is to unite thyself to the subtle principle of life eternal. Mine inferior nature is the bond of union between myself and all created beings. Hence it is likened to Gimel, the camel, which bringeth a man safe through desert waste from city to city. Again, it is likened to Gimel, 
because the camel beareth rich and costly merchandise. And again, for that the camel betokeneth travel and communication, being thus a symbol of change, and of the flux and mingling of ideas borne upon the stream of memory. Happy is he who bestrideth this camel of mine inferior nature, which bringeth them who learn the secret of its mastery unto me, their Lord. A task most difficult and laborious is the conquest of the power of recollection. Strength and courage and patience must they have who would gain this victory. But these shall be as kings and princes in this world, and even as gods in the world to come. And that brings us, of course, right into the core of our second subject here um, that we would like to talk about here, the women of the Golden Dawn. And uh, beyond that, if we find the time at the end of this talk, because um, you very kindly accepted when I contacted you and said, I would like to talk a lot about that subject as well, because um, uh, it seems to me that this is the only real study, the only real um, extensive study that is available, that is around about, um, well, that subject, the women in the Golden Dawn. And uh, I think we can also carry it afterwards also a bit beyond the Golden Dawn as such, women in magical orders or... or um, so uh, you just uh, gave me the reason why you started that. Um, how, how did you get close to the Golden Dawn? What intrigued you about the Golden Dawn that triggered... Uh, it was not only the women, I guess, it was maybe maybe something else that uh, also attracted you in 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 that order didn't it um well it was the, the system of correspondences um i've mm. rarely used the golden dawn technique for reading the cards although i did study it pretty extensively um mm -hmm. so i i wanted to know what the tarot meant to the members of the golden dawn and i was more interested in the symbolism so um i started with the correspondence course that uh, paul foster case did in builders of the adidam so I would say that that right. was probably my introduction into the the Golden Dawn at first was uh, learning everything I could and, and the work on symbology that Paul Foster Case did in his book on the tarot uh, is absolutely brilliant. So I could see that they understood 
symbolism at such a deep level that was both occult and psychological and uh, literary and, um, you know, historical, uh, all combined. So all of my interests and my um, love of research and study uh, were intrigued by this. And uh, from that, then the Women of the Golden Dawn. And then uh, while I was working on the book, I also was initiated into uh, a Golden Dawn Lodge. Um, I only went right. through two initiations because of the distance I had to travel to do it. But um, I made some yeah. friends and yeah. it was a great experience. Mm -hmm. That's something that's something I think that many people do experience who there are a lot of people, me including, interested in that system, but um, who are too far away from from actual uh, working temples in order to be able to to be active. Um, Just a little uh, parenthesis, uh, I, was, I think that's one of the few advantages we learned from the last two years with Corona, that maybe some opening about, I'm not talking about um, distance initiation, but about having a different way of working those systems has opened now. I believe there has been mm -hmm. made, call it progress, but um, at least some change has happened uh, on the, in that field. But end parenthesis, <laughs> not, not really to do with our subject here. Well, uh, yeah, it is important yeah. because on Zoom, I've, I've done um, tarot rituals on Zoom with groups of people where uh, by agreement, they all had mm -hmm. their own decks, they had candles, they, you know, they had a little altar set up and we went, uh, would go mm -hmm. through a uh, ritual together. And I, I feel like oh. they were incredibly significant and important. So I'm, Uh, certainly not going to say that you have to be there in living person in a group to have that experience. Uh, absolutely. I, I'm absolutely with you. And I, I find that a very interesting. I didn't know about tarot rituals, to be honest. Uh, um, and I find it a very interesting example because I believe personally that you can create an egregore also Uh, if those people are in different locations, of mm -hmm. course, certain things don't work if you are not in the same location, but, but, uh, good parts of it do work. So exactly. Can you maybe just explain what the tarot ritual is? Um, just briefly what, what, what that means, the tarot ritual? Um, well, um, ritual is a symbol in action. Uh, usually set around an intent, but I feel personally, my, um, take on a ritual is that for it to be effective, there has to be a transformation. And so you may go into it with a very specific intent that actually gets transformed in the process of the ritual itself. I do feel that for a okay. truly successful ritual, there is a transformation that takes place within yourself and there's not um, ritual magicians keep a very tight, uh, boundary on this. You know, they would not agree with me. <laughs> you know, you have to be in charge all the way and know exactly what you're doing. Um, I come from what I call California eclectic goddess spirituality, and we allow <laughs> all kinds of things to happen in the moment. So, um, there's no uh -huh. set way to do the rituals, um, and you don't have to have all the accoutrements, but, um, they are there to teach you, um, 
particular things, how to focus, how to, um, you know, be true to the self, how to open your heart, you know, holding a rose quartz in your hand uh, can teach you to remember to keep your heart open and connected with other people. And then you don't have to always hold the rose quartz. You just bring that to mind. So the cards um, and integrating them with the tools can be uh, teaching for how to set your intention, be with it, uh, charge it through energy, um, whether it's music, sound, dance, um, uh, you know, whatever, um, and uh, then release and and let it go um, uh, mm-hmm. to happen. And it acknowledge the transformation or change if that you feel that's happened within yourself you know where does that take you now yeah yeah short, yeah. short no, course I, I absolutely <laughs> with you on that no 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 but uh, yeah. no and very interesting very interesting but now we have to go back to those women of the golden dawn uh, yeah. how important that work is when was it published in what year mary Oh, gosh, I, I have to look real quickly. I think it was uh, 94, but that's I could be off. Um, I, I think so, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm in my 70s. Forgive is. me. 95. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 95. Um, um, so the, how important that book is is shown by the fact that it is still available in ebook yeah. now as well and, of course, in hard copy. And that's quite something nowadays for a book uh, that has been published in the 90s. Um, yeah. So who uh, were those four women that you, that you picked? And, uh, well, question why you picked them is maybe a bit obsolete because, of course, they were four main figures in the in in the traditional initial let's put it that way first order of the golden dawn but maybe you could just give us a quick overview of the four ladies and uh, what their role was well the golden dawn was founded in 1888 and moina um at the time moina uh, mina bergson um had met McGregor Mathers, one of the founders, and she was the first initiate beyond the the three uh, central founders. Um, So that was in 1888. And then between um, 1890 and 91, the other other three women were initiated. So um, Mina Bergson, who was the sister of Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, um, Jewish from a, a religious Jewish background. Um, she mm-hmm. uh, married uh, McGregor Mathers, who was one of the founders, and she was very highly psychic. And so a lot of the rituals and she was also an artist. So a lot of the uh, artwork that is used, including probably the original deck, uh, was done by um, her. So she took the name Moina to kind of uh, make more Celtic um, her her name Mm -hmm. and um, to indicate her relationship with McGregor Mathers, who uh, very much took on a Celtic um, persona. Um, then there was her one of her very best friends, Annie Horneman, uh, who was uh, an early initiate, and Annie financed the Golden Dawn. She also was uh, very instrumental in um, founding the or financing the Abbey Theater for uh, William Butler Yeats, a very famous uh, poet and author um, in the British uh, literary canon, uh, probably one of the most famous. And of the important 20th to the Golden. 
Golden Dawn as well. Right, yes, right, and central right, to yeah. the Golden Dawn. He yes. was very much an important member. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. She, um, she financed his Abbey Theater and then later built um, a theater in Manchester and donated a lot of things to the Manchester Museum. Most of their pre-Raphaelite art came from her collection. So she was a very wealthy uh, woman. And uh, then there was uh, Florence Farr, who was uh, a famous actress at the time. And she was um, intimately involved with uh, William Butler Yeats and with George Bernard Shaw, famous playwright of the time. So um, she became head of the Golden Dawn in London uh, at the time of their breakup. That's a long story. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, yeah, so. exactly. Uh, she was the model for the new woman, which was a whole uh, literary and uh, dr dramatic con concept of a woman who uh, could own herself, could um, really become whatever it was that she wanted to become. And then there was the um, Irish revolutionary Maud Gaughan who was a um, very close relationship with William Butler Yeats um, and um, with him wanted to create a magical order to help Ireland regain its, uh, its freedom from Britain. So in a nutshell. Right, <laughs> right. I, uh, and uh, when you hear those four names and your your brief uh, story about them, if you if you are if you want to be bad for a moment, you can say, okay, and um, those four, at least those four ladies, they all had very personal reasons. Let's put it that way to to get into the Golden Dawn. Do you think the from the other side, from the men's side, uh, as you said, it was the first time that in such an occult order, women were admitted at all, right? And I think the original founding texts even say that men and women have to be treated in equality in in the order. Um, but do you think that was from the heart of Westcott and Mathers, or was it also driven by the circumstances? Um, well, it's hard to know because they didn't leave anything that spoke about it. But at um, some point when Westcott um, removed himself from actively and in, active involvement in the Golden Dawn, partly because of um, some issues that had come around up around the use of sexual magic that Annie Horniman was vehemently against and very angry against, that anybody yeah. had uh, even brought it up. Um, and with the controversies that came about, he removed himself from active involvement in the Golden Dawn. So um, mm. I am. I think the impetus had to do more with a woman named Anna Kingsford, who had been in charge of the London Theosophical Society uh, immediately after its founding, when uh, Blavatsky went off to America and was doing all of her travels. Right. So Anna Kingsford was the one who actually ran the Theosophical Society in the very early years, and uh, specifically a magical-oriented uh, uh, part of it. And and Westcott and Mathers had both lectured uh, for uh, a society that she created independently. And she was very much for the idea of men and women working together magically, that that combination okay. of mm. masculine and feminine was essential. Not in a sexual way, right. though. Um yeah, 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 yeah. It, not in the sexual. Crowley, later, later Crowley way, physically, physically sexual. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, 
Um, uh, would you agree? I often try when people ask me and also call for the question of Freemasonry and all that. When people ask me, I often try to explain, well, it's a misunderstanding between the difference of the of, of two hermetic laws, at least if you take the split into seven laws, which is done by later Kibalian uh, authors. But mm. um, between the, the, the law of polarity and the law of the two of the two sexes, right? Because those are two distinct laws and they don't they touch the same subject but in a very distinguished way yeah. right uh, would you say that's part of the of the issue in that case um it's hard for me to speak to the way in which people saw it at the time in of course, talking about yes. Victorian world. Uh, one of the things I've been mm. grappling with a lot is the whole idea of the anima and the animus in Jungian psychology. I now call it the animaus. <laughs> and throughout the whole idea of it being conscious sexual aspect of the self um, and, you know, that has to do with our social preconceptions about the roles of the different sexes. Um, I think we need to reconceptualize all of this. Um, one thing I found difficult um, many years ago uh, with uh, British occult and magical organizations is that they were they tended, and maybe not so much anymore, uh, to be much um, more dogmatic about the roles of the priest and the priestess in rituals and the necessity mm -hmm. of uh, working together with male and female energy. And we're rather disparaging of magical orders that were totally gay, you know, either um, radical feminists right. or, um, you know, uh, uh, gay yeah. men. Um, and I think mm -hmm. we need to throw all of that out. And we're still at that yes. stage and, you know, accepting transsexuality, which Native American people always did. Um, so mm. all of these things need to be reconceptualized. And we're working on it now and stumbling along in sometimes very difficult ways. So we and need to what role? Look at it. What, what role can magical orders nowadays, especially if they have long traditions like the ones that we we spoke about here, not yep. only the Golden Dawn but also others, and what role can they play? How should they, in your point of view, uh, play that role to make the question of the question of gender, let's put it that way, not a question, but just right. a, a situation, right? Um, diversity, seeing instead of seeing genders as being a polarity, seeing it as a vast range of different potentials mm -hmm. and possibilities. That's essential. Um, and therefore, it's not divided in any kind of specific ways. Um, But actions can be, um, you know, as long as any individual can be seen as uh, containing within them the potential and possibility for uh, extremes as well as anywhere within the range. Um, but you know, I also feel that it's perfectly all right for any particular ritual group to work within a, a set of guidelines that they choose for themselves. I also encourage mm -hmm. people uh, or I, I encourage the idea that um, with magic and ritual, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> you have to mm -hmm. practice 
and make mistakes and correct them and try different things. And sometimes it's very painful and uh, problematic if you're going to come to new realizations or discover what actually works and doesn't work within a new perspective. It can't be theoretical. It has to be done with practice. Yeah. And for to do that, you have to have a range of people a great diversity uh, and range of people who are willing to open themselves up to and trust each other enough to, um, you know, explore what different potentials and possibilities. And luckily, um, I know of groups here in the States that uh, have done this in uh, tremendous ways. I, I was a keynote speaker at uh, in Portland, Oregon, with a large group that incorporated many different um, uh, magical orders that um, from different mm -hmm. traditions, but they came together and there was a range of gender <laughs> um, oriented people there uh, who've been doing this for a long mm -hmm. time together. And I saw how powerful it can be when everybody comes together with that understanding of we're here to explore our human potential. Yeah, at the moment where we don't even see any more the difference, that will be the moment when it doesn't play any role anymore, right? Well, the different there's a difference there, um, but I think it's more about the flex rather than there not being difference. Um, diversity is important mm -hmm. and for personal expression. Yes. And yes. somebody might yes. even change yes. through their lifetime. So uh, it's recognizing and giving space for that diversity and for ritual work, discovering how that diversity can be of benefit in our workings. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's go back to those four ladies. Uh, this is now yes. a difficult jump because you just mentioned that and it is it is of course, that's true in many, many cases when we regard history that we too often have tendency to regard history from our contemporary point of view and not viewing it from the point hard to, to view it from the point of view of that time it happened. So Victorian age was very different and those four, um, three of them, and that always intrigues me, three of those four um, were theater people. They were, well, Florence Farr was maybe the most active in that field, but also the two others were actresses. Mm -hmm. One had not much success, so she then became more a, a finance lady for the arts, but uh, for the right. theater, as you mentioned with the Abbey Theater. But all, all three had, and I believe even Mina had had some contact to the theater world at some point in the early in the early years, uh, still in France. But uh, at least those three, there, it's clear. Do you think this has anything to do um, with their roles within the Golden Dawn? Or is that just because they were different because they were in the theater at the time? Um, I think the theater at the time gave them much more license to um, step out of their tr the traditional roles uh, that were expected of women. Uh, actresses mm -hmm. were still considered by the general public to be 
almost synonymous with prostitutes <laughs> or courtesans. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, being in a profession, uh, a theatrical profession, meant that you had to um, recognize uh, that people might see you that way, but it also gave you a lot more freedom. Uh, to have liaisons with, um, you know, various people. And and, um, so um, also for ritual purposes, of course, um, having some familiarity with uh, theatrics uh, can help to bring that kind of focus and consciousness uh, awareness uh, to be in the role or part. But I think also Mm -hmm. being in rituals with people who have that experience means that other people can come up to par very quickly, (laughs) Uh, can learn just through uh, being uh, and seeing what it's like for someone to totally take on um, a a god or goddess form for within the ritual, for instance. Yeah, sure. That that certainly plays an important role. I see. Yeah. I see that myself. Yeah, being a theater man myself. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, there's one person which you have not um, in the book, but of course that's clear because it's she's not really involved in that time in the Golden Dawn. She's much later. She wrote the book about uh, uh, about matters. Um, but um, I would be interested if you have a take on her. I. I have such a hard time pronouncing that name always correctly. You have Ethel Kolkwon, right? I think that's, that's uh, she's uh, um, uh, the famous artist, surrealist, and she wrote a book about the Golden... She was a member of the Golden Dawn at a later right. stage, but she wrote a book about mm-hmm. matters and the whole period. Do uh, you have any view on her and her role in that in that organization? Oh, I haven't looked at her in years. I, I know some of her, um, she did a, a, a tarot deck um, that's more art deck, oriented. Yeah. Um, and I, but I haven't taken the time to really delve into um, what's been written about her recently. Um, mm-hmm. She, yeah, she was very intrigued by it. Moina Mathers kind of pushed her away. She found other accesses uh, to be able to um, experience yeah. the Golden Dawn work. Um, yeah, I don't really have much to say about her, but I know that recently there's been right. uh, a lot of interest in her, so it's it's possible to yeah, find yeah, out about yeah. her work. Flo- Florence Farr, on the other hand, also there has been recently quite a lot of interest in her, and I believe also her her magical writings and plays are yeah. going to be re-edited soon by, by a British uh, publisher. Uh, um, huh. So what do you think is so special about Florence Farr that she seems to have more survived than Moina or the others. Um, well, I think each of them could, you know, potentially have their time coming forth, but um, there's more information about her than uh, about the others, okay. except perhaps Maud Gon. Um, but Maud Gon was less involved in the Golden Dawn than Florence Farr was. Um, yeah. So that combination of uh, the fact that she was deeply involved in the running of the Golden Dawn and in teaching about the Golden Dawn um, during the period that she was involved in it. Um, she 
I, I can't say she was the one who most intrigued me because whenever I was focusing on any one of the women, I was totally on their side, <laughs> totally connected in with uh, sure. that particular one rather than anyone over the others. But the fact that she lived a more freestyle uh, life lifestyle was intriguing and towards the end of her life went off to Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, uh, to be the uh, yeah. principal of a, a women's college there. Um, uh, and because of me being a teacher, teaching in colleges, I um, and doing magic and <laughs> all of this uh, together, um, I do feel some kind of special connection with her. Um, that she flaunted yeah. all of the conventions of the period, that she became a model for the new woman uh, in George Bernard Shaw's um, perspective, uh, because he's the one who co coined mm -hmm. the phrase and uh, really talked about uh, the role of the new woman and used her as the model for that. Um, yeah, I just find her really um, intriguing. You know, what does it take to throw off um, the assumptions of your role in society, uh, you know, in mm -hmm. the culture that you live in and move beyond that? She was incredibly Definitely. brave, and also, of course, she in in within the the, the Golden Dawn itself, uh, she was the spearhead of that fight between the London Lodge and Madras, and and right. uh, what came out of it. I mean, uh, voluntarily or not, but she had to have have the the the, the power and uh, and the forces in herself to carry that along, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I do think she was trying to speak for truth. In other words, there had been um, a certain basis of what the Golden Dawn was, what it stood for, um, how things were to be handled, that she was trying to honor and to respect um, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. she might flaunt convention, but when she had committed herself to something, she gave her all to that. And um, yeah. th that was kind of thrown in her face by Mathers, um, who declared that the founding documents were made and the, the supposed authority um, uh, from a yeah. woman in, in Germany <laughs> was all fake. And yes. that's never been totally resolved. Um, the fact that she stood up and would not initiate Crowley um, at a point, whether she it was right or wrong, you know, because of his um, reputation, primarily sexual reputation that he had developed, which at the mm. time was um, went too far over the bounds. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I mean, she stood up for her principles and yeah, I admire that. Very in special her. woman, I guess. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, Moina, of course, is well known for other reasons, being the being being Mather's wife, and had a whole different story with the with the Golden Dawn to carry along. Um, do you know that beyond if beyond those four who were kind of leading figures and names that we still know today, uh, how many women were part of that London Lodge at the time in the eighteen eighties and nineties? Um, I think at one point I did a count, but I don't remember what it was. Um, I, uh, my sense was that it may have been about a third, um, of the people were women, okay. but that's, 
That's my feeling rather than um, anything that I remember in terms of details. I, I did go through and do counts at various points. And yeah. that, that was, what, 25 years ago? <laughs> yeah, more than that, more than that, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm now in um, my 70s. I, my memory for details is uh, really <laughs> bad. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, sure, sure. Do, do, do we happen to know how the situation is today in those orders? Are we I, kind of in numbers on equality and on roles within the? I, I don't know really, actually, to be, to be honest. I mean, even trying of to course, figure out who you, you know accept names, as official Golden Dawn temples or not. Oh is, yes! Oh my God! Yeah, you know, we yeah, don't even want to yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go there. I was going to say, let's not go into that. Exactly. <laughs> that that might be a completely different discussion. Exactly. Which oh, is I don't a, know if anybody would want to get into that prickly. <laughs> Yeah. No, we get a long discussion on Facebook after that, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Well, Mary, uh, we're coming towards the end of our talk, but I cannot let you go before having asked you two things. A, um, do you have any plans for new books or for something coming up that we uh, and our listeners should know about here? Um, let's see. Uh, new books. Um I've got one on hiatus and I don't want to speak about that because that's off on the side. Okay. Um, I will be teaching at Omega uh, Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Normally we have people from all over the world who come to it, but in July uh, there's going to be a weekend conference with Rachel Pollack and me and three other incredible oh. uh, tarot mm -hmm. teachers, Jenna Matlin, Nancy uh, Hendrickson, right. and T. Susan Chang, who've all written books and um, right. done incredible teachings. Yeah. And then there's five days with yeah. just Rachel and I where we go into more of the brass tacks, um, you know, basics of tarot as well as a lot of experiential work uh, in tarot uh, yeah. Um, yeah. with uh, a yeah. group. Yeah. yeah. So... Well, Over Rachel Rachel was a guest on this show about two years ago. Uh, she was on this show as well. I had her as a guest on the show. It was yeah. an interesting talk. So people who have not listened to that, they can go back and listen to it as well. Um, no, she's a great, she's a great person. Um, right. Um, and the second question I have for you before we have to end our talk, Mary, um, when a young person, uh, or not so young, but a newcomer, so to speak, to to the field of the uh, not the tarot this time, but the the order world of, of the world of magical orders, right, mm -hmm. uh, uh, would like to approach one of them, especially a woman in that mm -hmm. case. Uh, sometimes uh, they are either warned or being put off by some situations that have occurred even recently in some of those orders don't without naming any of them mm. how would you how would you guide a young woman uh, who is interested uh, to what should they be at to watch out how to, could they be able to find their group in a good and spiritually oh. and otherwise safe way um, well, with the internet now, you can ask around. And so you can mm -hmm. get recommendations uh, from people and warnings <laughs> um, from individuals. Yeah. Uh, if Once you find a group that you want to try out, um, then 
you know, be um, aware that you can speak up and speak out if something does yeah. not feel right to you and do that. Mm -hmm. um, Unfortunately, you can't, I would say, go to other women. Uh, there are some women who have been um, uh, inappropriately supporting things that aren't uh, always mm. right in mm. terms of, you know, sexual abuse situations. Um, but yes. for the most part, I think solidarity um, among women looking mm. for men who are willing to hear that and listen to it. Um yeah. to uh, honor your when you feel uncomfortable about something um yes that's those are the key things and then if there is a problem and you're not getting support within your group go ahead and speak out first just about the situation itself you don't have to name the order um first just yeah. get you know is this appropriate or not go on facebook go on you know twitter or any of those and say you know what what do you think of this kind of situation and i think the support you're going to get of um i belong to an order and i'd never put up with that <laughs> kind of thing from other women might would be very helpful so we do have resources yeah. now that we didn't have don't stand there for bullying look up what constitutes bullying and sexual abuse online and hold your your mark and find uh so people to be solid uh whatever yeah defend yourself <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah so, yeah, exactly. Um, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for answering. Uh, I know a really tough question, but I, who else should I ask if not you? Because you're, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you're very, very good at that. Mm. Well, we do. We have well, to talk about these things. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm with you. Yeah. Absolutely with you. Thank you, Mary. It was great to have you. It was great to have you on this show and uh, wish you all the best for your future projects. And um, well, take care. And uh, it was lovely to have you. Thank you. Oh, Rudolph, it was wonderful talking with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye.
Fabio Pedrotti, the Chario card with also his text and his music. Um, once again, please, if you want to know more about Fabio, if you want to have the text in front of you while you listen to this card music, then go on the website thoughtshermes.com, go on today's episode's show notes and you will find all that there. Thanks, Fabio, for coming to me with that music and for offering it to us. That's great of you. And, well, thank you, Mary, Mary Kay Greer, for a lovely talk we had. Uh, we both enjoyed that. You could feel it, I hope. And it was really great to have her finally on the Thought Hermes podcast. Thanks also to all of you who were listening here today. Thank you for being our customers, so to speak. And uh, once again, if you want to support the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Go to patreon.com and become a member uh, you, that starts at $1 per episode. I think many of you can afford that. would be great if we had some more support we needed. Thank you. Um, what's up next week? Episode 16, of course. Yes, that was obvious. But who will be my guest next week? You want to know? Okay, I will tell you. Um, Naomi Ozaniak. Naomi Ozaniak, who lives in Portugal and who has recently written a new book, which has been published by um, Inner Traditions. And that book is the topic of our talk, but not only. The book is called Becoming a Garment of Isis, a step-by-step guide to developing an embodied relationship with Egyptian divinities. Interesting, sacred science of ancient Egypt, always fascinating. She, Naomi, has, of course, written other books before we talk about that and her life as well and uh, so come back next week and we will be very happy to have you on the show here um, to listen to Naomi and myself okay so for the time being enjoy the week have a good week and be careful be safe and take care stay tuned hear you soon